Welcome to the Persisters Can podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lubois. Today's certified persister is Camille Gooden. Camille was born and raised in Kingston, Jamaica, and later attended the University of the West Indies and its law school. She was a practicing lawyer in Kingston for a decade before moving to Canada, where she began practicing law in Ontario. She became a health policy advisor in the Ministry of Health Promotion and Sport before serving as the Chief of Staff to the Minister of Consumer Services from 2012 to 2014 in the McGuinty government. In the Wynne government, Camille served under the Deputy Premier and President of the Treasury Board, as well as the Minister of Housing and Minister Responsible for Poverty Reduction, as the Senior Policy Advisor responsible for the Poverty Reduction Strategy, the Local Poverty Reduction Fund, and the Historic Basic Income Pilot. Camille joins us today to talk about how she got involved in politics, what it takes to tackle poverty through policy work, and how we can encourage more women to get involved in civic life. Thanks for joining me, Camille. Hi, good afternoon. So let's start at the beginning and talk a little bit about where you grew up. Ah, proudly born and raised in Jamaica. I grew up in Kingston, um, schooling. I'm a graduate of the University of the West Indies and it's affiliated Norman Manley Law School. So I am an island girl. So can you talk a bit about your life before politics? Because obviously there's a bit of a gap between growing up as an island girl and then, you know, joining Ontario's government. Can you talk about that sort of transition period? Well, yes, yes. So um, my career before politics would have started in Jamaica. I was a practicing lawyer in Jamaica for over t- 10 years. I practiced um, at the private bar in private practice. I was also in-house counsel for a bank for a few years in Kingston. And um, after relocating to Canada, I also practiced here in Ontario after my call to the bar in 2007. So um, like many people in politics, I had a career in law before entering politics. Yeah, that's definitely the case for a number of people who, you know, we've worked with in our time in politics. What was that sort of first moment where you got politically involved? Um, Well, even let me go back to just growing up before getting involved in politics in any official capacity. Um, Growing up in Jamaica, I grew up in a very politically active household, Um, though they were not into representational politics. Um, my, my, my parents and older family members were engaged in uh, party politics, engaged in community um, activism. And as a child, um, I, I was always listening to and even participating in discussions relating to local politics, Caribbean regional politics, and certainly international politics. Uh, much of our family members live and still do in the United States, the UK and parts of Europe. So there was always a political conversation happening at the dining table or on the patio on a Sunday afternoon with a wider group of people. So that was um, my sort of first foray, always being a part of some form of political discourse. Um, Fast forward to my family relocating to Ontario, uh, 1999, 2000, thereabouts. Um, You know, I'm in a new place, getting a sense of what's happening here. I continued through with my legal studies. And after a couple of years of private practice here in Ontario, I had this sense that been there, done that, 
I wanted to do something more, something different, a little bit more impactful. Um, by 2007, I've been here now for you know almost seven years. My children were in school, and I was beginning to get a sense of you know the growing socioeconomic issues in in, in Canada, and it was evident to me that you know notwithstanding Canada's wealth and the position of Ontario as an economic driver of the country's success, that issues around income inequality were quite problematic. Um, there were issues afflicting the health and educational sectors that were very apparent. Uh, um, through my own personal networks, um, I started meeting more people, some of whom were now getting interested or involved in politics. And in 2007, I volunteered on a campaign in the Scarborough Gilwood riding, and that was quite the immersive experience. So that would have been my first sort of foray. And mind you, let me tell you, um, family members back home in Jamaica were like, girl, are you crazy? What are you doing? Are you mad knocking on people's doors, talking to them about which party they're voting for? They were so worried, they were so concerned. And I was like, I'm having the time of my life. <laughs> and um, next minute you know, two, two years later, an opportunity uh, arose that I could um, join the minister's office at the then Ministry of Health Promotion. And as they would say, the rest is history. I, I think that's really funny because to an outsider, people who do walk around door to door talking to random strangers about their political beliefs does seem a little out there. It seems like something. <laughs> why? Why are you doing this? But um, yeah, uh, you know, us who are in politics, we for some reason like doing that and get really hooked on it. And sometimes it leads to work in government. So as you mentioned, um, you went over and worked as a health policy advisor in the Ministry of Health and Promotion and Sport. Um, you then became chief of staff to the Minister of Consumer Services. This was from 2012 to 2014, and it was during the, the McGuinty minority government. So context setting here, this is as the province is coming out of the Great Recession, which was, you know, a multi-year sort of economic event in the province, but also globally. Um, and a lot of people were sort of struggling, struggling economically. You had already been talking about how that was the reality even before that point. Um, so in your work as chief of staff in that ministry, the way that you could tackle uh, some of the issues that Ontarians were facing from a financial perspective was from the consumer angle. Um, so your team, you know, put forward a number of different uh, pieces of legislation and policies to help protect people on the consumer end of things. You had the Wireless Services Agreement Act, the Condominium Act, and the Payday Lending Act, um, amongst others. So I'm wondering if you can talk about some of these pieces of legislation and pieces of policy that your team worked on during this time and how it helped protect people uh, during a time of great financial difficulty. Uh, certainly, certainly. Um, I, I, I will say that during my almost three and a half years at uh, Consumer Services uh, in the minister's office, um, we had what I would refer to as a very activist consumer protection agenda. Um, people, as you say, as you said, uh, were reeling from the economic uh, realities of the time. And there were a number of sort of emerging and existing consumer protection issues that 
uh, were causing angst in the, in, the, in, the, in the pocketbooks and wallets of Ontarians. And uh, people were becoming a bit more vocal. There are certain industries that were becoming a bit more vocal. Some calling, believe it or not, for better and stronger regulations. Um, consumer protection groups calling on government to step up and do more to protect consumers from what they thought were unsavory practices in, in various aspects of the marketplace. Um, one of the areas I can certainly touch on is the payday lending um, scenario, where right. there was a growing demand for these services and many consumers were in fact falling prey to predatory lending practices that quite frankly was simply further financially burdening them as vulnerable borrowers. Um, whilst these loans were seemingly convenient, they were often riddled with uh, what we would call unclear, misleading terms, coupled with very exorbitant rates of interest and charges, um, and couched in languages and in, 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 in tons of voluminous paperwork that would cause the, the, the average borrower not to be truly aware of what they were getting themselves into. It was simply a service that they needed, it seemed convenient, and they had no way out. Unfortunately, what it meant is that many borrowers were ultimately trapped in cycles of debt, pulling them further into poverty. At that time, there was in fact a, a sort of rise in the number of these services because the demand was there. You're, we were in, in an economic unstable time. Um, now, that was attributable to any number of things, rise in precarious employment as well, low wages, people being unbanked or underbanked, and the legislation that existed needed to reflect current business practices and emerging issues. So what we tried to do from the consumer protection standpoint at Consumer Services was to ensure that businesses were in fact licensed operators, certain practices that would entrap people into repeated loans due to high fees um, and interest rates were prohibited. We sought to clamp down on practices that would worsen their financial position. So that was on the payday lending side and we did achieve levels of success there. Um, when we talk about um, the Condominium Act, that was a platform issue. The reform of the act was actually a platform issue from back in 2011. Now, anyone who has lived in Toronto since 2010 and onwards, would you could see how much the landscape had changed. The condo landscape had changed dramatically since that act was passed way back in 1998. And by 2014, um, my, my memory serves me right, though statistics show that there were about 1.2, 1.3 million people living in a condo in Ontario. And the number of condo units were rising, pun intended, rapidly. Um, <laughs> and in fact, the GTA was literally awash with condo development. And as with any form of rapid change, existing laws just didn't go far enough to protect consumers. And it was evident for quite a while that the act required changes and new mechanisms to better protect whether existing homeowners or new buyers, as well as streamlining how condos were financially managed and physically maintained. Um, you know, as I said, with increasing numbers of folks making a condo their home at a significant expenditure, significant cost, it was important that the laws around condos and you know, condo management, kind of managers, 
issues around things like the reserve fund, which is important for the maintenance of the building, and other financial disclosures, that these things were um, improved. Um, and, and, and we set out to do that, and to a large extent, we actually did. Anybody living in a condo now when looking at the, um, the, the various disclosure requirements will see that. On the cell phone front, now, that was a, another huge endeavor um, while I was at Consumer Services. The Wireless Services Agreement Act, again, we were looking at improving the consumer's ability to clearly understand the contract terms. I mean, you needed a PhD and maybe two very often to really understand <laughs> the terms of some of these uh, mobile contracts. You know, people lead busy lives. They, 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 they need a service. You, everybody had to have some form of mobile device, but um, you know, you needed a service that you could afford and on reasonable and fair terms and you're managing tight bu um, budgets. So the mobile devices, they were increasingly necessary. Um, and one of the things is that Ontario and Canada generally, we were seen as having very high rates relative to other jurisdictions. And um, there was limited competition in the marketplace and consumers were very often at a disadvantage when it came to securing the best affordable service based on their needs. Um, we needed to make changes that would require, again, plain language terms, the provision of things like consents around changes to your fixed term contract or whether you could extend a contract and how you could renew a contract. One huge issue was that of roaming charges and cancellation costs and unlocking your phone. It was, for many people, the man on the street, it was very often just a nightmare. And we wanted to update or rather put in place legislation that could address much of those issues, particularly because at the federal level, um, what needed to be done, quite frankly, was not being done and at the pace that it needed to be done. These are just a few of the examples of, of some of the consumer protection measures that we uh, dealt with during a minority government. And let me say this, I am particularly proud of the work we did, the team we had, because anyone in government who has worked through a minority government knows how challenging it is. You have to work 100% harder. It's increasingly important to work with your members across the aisle to get their support your key st stakeholders across industries to get their buy-in, to get these bills passed. And we were able to get a number of significant pieces of consumer protection legislation passed with all party consent during a minority government. When you talk about those measures that you've put together, getting support from across the aisle is very rare, especially in a minority when you know the people across the aisle are trying to score points and make mm -hmm. the government look bad so that mm -hmm. they can win the upcoming election. So it's it's a really big deal. Speaking of that upcoming election, the 2014 election came and went. Uh, Kathleen Wynne's Liberals won what I think to many was a surprise election victory where they won a majority government in 2014, which meant, you know, we had a big cabinet shuffle happen. We had new people coming into positions both as ministers, but also as staff. And at this point, you moved over to Treasury Board Secretariat. And so Treasury Board Secretariat is something that maybe not everybody knows how it works or what it does. But that office is essentially tasked with advising the most senior levels of cabinet, um, the most senior cabinet ministers on how to manage tax dollars 
in a way that delivers the most benefit to the people of Ontario. And that was something that, you know, when we were in the office, we really focused on um, in terms of really getting, you know, value for dollar. Um, that office was led by Minister Deb Matthews, who was the president of the sec the president of the Treasury Board Secretariat, but she was also the deputy premier, which meant she was you know, managing one of the most important ministries uh, in the government at that time, but also the premier's, you know, political right hand and, you know, longest, longest sort of ally in terms of her government, um, which meant anyone in that office had some pretty serious work to be doing. And you were one of those people as a policy advisor. Um, so when you were there, you had to work with, again, Treasury Board is kind of like Premier's office or Cabinet office, where they work with all the other ministries across the board in government and really have their hands in all the different files that government is focused on. Um, for you, that meant focusing on the government's poverty reduction uh, efforts, which under Kathleen Wynne was a huge focus and under your minister, Deb Matthews, was a huge focus. The first strategy for that uh, policy area launched in 2008, which meant it was due for an update uh, in the time that you were working in that office. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what the poverty poverty reduction strategy was, how it came together, and what were some of the specific goals that were put into that strategy? Uh, okay. Um, well, yes. So by the time I went over to uh, Treasury Board, the second strategy had, had actually been launched. Um, right. If we back up a little in terms of how does our poverty reduction strategy come together, it's there is not really one set approach because uh, poverty is such a complex societal problem, and it, you know there are, there are very there are various components to any uh, poverty reduction strategy, and very much a function of what priority areas are and how a particular government de decides to deal with it. Um, certainly in Ontario, uh, back in 2008, when the first strategy came out, leading up to that, the Liberal government at the time of the creation of that one acknowledged that tackling poverty, especially at a time when one in six children in the province was living in poverty, was critical right. if they were ever going to successfully tackle things like economic and social development. Um, it was clear, too, that what was required and what was in fact done was a whole of government and collaborative approach. So working across all levels of government, working across all the various government ministries um, and, and with stakeholders in the not-for-profit and for-profit spaces. I mean, you would have heard this constant refrain, all hands on deck approach. So there was right. a lot of research, a lot of consultation, a lot of collaboration that went into kind of pinpointing what would be priority areas or buckets um, that would come into a, a, a strategy and all the various tactics and measures and funding that would go in place. Um, this approach was necessary as, you know, reducing poverty isn't just about addressing household incomes, but it, it spans a number of things like early childhood education, health and educational attainments, people's employment, skill training, the issue of affordable housing, mental health resources, as well as income supports. Um, back then again, the priority focus for the administration at the time uh, was child poverty. And there was a cabinet committee that came together and you, you are right in terms of um, Minister Matthews from then being the champion 
of this particular issue. Uh, there were extensive community consultations that were done with service organizations to ensure that certainly the appropriate policy measures were put in place and backed with funding. The, as, um, breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty was very important, as well as stabilizing incomes for the most vulnerable. Coming out of that first strategy, what we had was a game changer in the Ontario Child Benefit. That made a huge difference for low-income families, enormous, and, and lifted quite a number of, of, of children and families out of poverty. Fast forward to our second strategy, was, which was called um, Realizing Our Potential. That aimed to build on the work of the first strategy, and uh, there was a decision to recommit efforts to reducing poverty amongst our children and youth. Uh, we had not got to the level of achievement, that commitment of a 25% reduction in child poverty over five years due to a number of factors had not been realized. Um, one of them, quite frankly, was the extent to which we would have want the federal government at the time to have committed to that. Um, so we didn't get to the numbers, but we did see an improvement. Uh, the second strategy expanded its scope beyond child poverty and went on to deal with other issues like connecting more people to employment as income derived from employment is in fact a key driver of poverty reduction. Um, boosting income support for the most vulnerable. We also had in that second strategy, and you may recall this, what we called a very bold long-term goal to end homelessness in the province. And lastly, a very exciting and an almost novel thing at the time, using evidence-based policy to measure success. That's actually a, a great jumping off point for my next question, because, you know, when we were working um, together, we worked together twice, actually, uh, but especially the second time around when we we're at the Ministry of Housing and Poverty Reduction, um, one of the big focuses of the work that we did was create was focusing on the local poverty reduction fund, which was a data-driven effort to support local poverty reduction strategies that, you know, at the end of the day, local people know what's going on in their community. They know how to address these problems. They put in place, uh, you know, policies and procedures that actually do address these things, but they don't always have the funding they need to actually build those programs up. Um, so the local poverty reduction fund was a really great way, a really data-driven way to address these issues, measure them, and invest in solutions that were, we saw were working. Um, so I wonder if you can talk about how the fund got started and then how it was rolled out. Because I believe, if I'm recalling correctly, you know, it was an annual, an annual fund where we would you know, identify new projects and put funding behind them. To this day, the fund is something I'm always very excited to talk about. <laughs> uh, the local poverty fund uh, was, it was different. It was innovative. It was government doing impact investing, quite frankly. Um, as yeah, I mentioned actually. before, yeah, as I mentioned before, the second strategy, um, one of the goals was we emphasized building an evidence base to guide policy making and invest in programs and services that work on the ground to reduce poverty and to lift people out of poverty. I mean, I can tell you there's some eyes that open wide at notion of government actually doing something like that. Looking at data, looking at evidence to guide policy, well, it, it actually happened. 
I know in the 2014 budget, um, there was a $50 million commitment for the fund. While we knew that there were many organizations providing a range of services, it was important for us as, as decision makers to be able to identify what was working and why, as well as what wasn't working, you know, and how those that worked and showed measurable results could actually be scaled up. We, very, we, we actually wanted to get to the, to the why, you know, why did this work? What was the secret sauce, right? Um, again, as we liked to do when you recall, we engaged in a lot of consultation across government, right. government yeah. ministries, stakeholders, community partners, in order to come up with the funds design and, and on, on completion of the process, which took a while, um, we had a call for proposals that was put out for the first set of applicants. It was application based and the process set out the criteria and eligibility requirements. Um, now, we, I, 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 I must confess that there are times when we had a bit of a pushback. You know, anything new um, becomes a bit of a, you know, appears challenging and why are we changing the way we've normally done things, government, you know, you, you fund something, you give out grants. Why are we doing all of this, this a different way? Um, you know, we, we were insistent. Minister Matthews was very insistent. And the proposals needed to demonstrate how they aligned with at least one of the 13 indicators in the poverty reduction strategy. How are they going to leverage community partnerships and have a strong evaluation framework? Um, they also had to show how were they going to sustain the project after the funding from the local poverty reduction fund right. had ended. And um, in organizations that could apply ranged from not-for-profits, corporations to registered charities, municipal governments, and also Aboriginal and First Nations, both on and off reserve. Um, so it was, it was a very unique and yet very innovative stuff. Um, we did get skepticism, not just from stakeholders, you know, we got skepticism within government as well. I mean, yeah. there were any number of questions that we were bombarded with. Was this 50 million, first of all, enough? What was this focus that we had on evaluation, you know, when many medium to small size community organizations didn't have the resources or the bandwidth to actually evaluate the programs? Where would they find an evaluator? How could they afford to do an evaluation process? What was government going to do with the data that it received? You know, there was skepticism around that. And I recall being at a, a, a roundtable discussion on one occasion, Teresa, and someone basically said to me, we are the organizations on the ground doing the heavy lifting. Why don't you just give us the grant so we can do our work? Why, why is government always getting in the way? <laughs> You know, um, no, you've worked with Minister Matthews and you know how strong she was on the issue of evaluation. Evaluation is critical as that aligned with developing the evidence-based policy and funding what works. So that's why it was needed. Treasury Board was also about managing scarce resources, right? And certainly we had exactly. to, from that evaluation standpoint, insist that what we, was, we were doing was developing evidence-based policy so that we could fund programs that were actually working. Now, for some organizations, um, depending on what they're doing, they could do a program evaluation, which would measure the effectiveness of the program. That would be helpful for them. 
while for others it was more of a process evaluation that might be beneficial to assess the program delivery or the impact of an, an intervention on a target population. Um, Minister Matthews, again, and, and generally the government as a whole, uh, we were very clear that we needed to see how they would evaluate the program. We needed to see how the programs would demonstrate their outcomes. And we needed to see how it related to the strategy, the poverty reduction strategy, and how these projects were moving the needle on, on, on poverty. Uh, we had, how did the funds roll out? Well, we had calls for proposal. As you said, there were funds. The fund had three years and we had a call for proposal each year. The fund had two streams. Initially, when we started, there was a general stream. There were lessons learned from that. And by the second call in 2016, we had two streams, one specifically for funding Indigenous-led projects. We listened to our Indigenous communities and their leaders and we had to make the necessary modifications to allow for them to have the capacity to apply for funding. And we had some excellent projects from our indigenous communities. Um, the, the, the fund also had a stream where there were homelessness related projects and a, about a 10 million amount was set aside between 2016 and 2017 to fund homelessness projects specifically. The fund was 2015, 16, and 17, so three years. We worked with a, a partner, Trillium, as a fund administrator. And I am pleased to say that um, we funded about 119 projects in about 40 communities across the, the province. And I'm talking about all corners of the province. And the, the, the kinds of projects varied and that, that, again, is a testament to the kind of work and partnerships that we engaged in, not just with government, but with community organizations across the province. I think it's, you know, I think it's, a, it's good that you brought up how sort of revolutionary this was, because you think about how government does budgeting and does, uh, you know, program decision making, and usually it's to your point you know, from earlier that there's a platform that happens during an election, those things get prioritized by the government because they're sort of their signature ideas and mm -hmm. money gets put behind those things. And then at that point, it largely just sort of continues on uninterrupted, unreviewed, unevaluated. Right, and right. that's kind of insane. And in government, occasionally you do have to go back and look at the efficacy of whatever it is you've done. Right. Uh, too often it becomes a thing about ideology, about how we feel something probably works as opposed to how it works in actuality. And right. when you were at Treasury Board, you know, you were talking about how Deb Matthews was very data focused and something that was going on during that time was the PRRT process <laughs> that we called it. it was program review renewal and transformation it was this idea of going back into government digging out what was working and what wasn't working and funding the things that were actually making the people of ontario's lives better right. so the local poverty reduction fund and the poverty reduction strategy coming out of that ministry initially clearly the fingerprints of that <laughs> were all over it because it was really about data it was about actually achieving results that were 
you know, transforming people's lives and not just speaking to it. Um, you know, I'm a comms person, so you can write all the pretty language you want about something, but if it's not actually changing people's lives from a policy perspective, then what are we even doing? So I think, I think when you bring that up about how, you know, different this was from what government normally does, you know, the proof was in the pudding because there was, there's so many results actually coming back to us in a way that showed that this approach was working. So, that leads me to my next question, because at this point, this is around 2016, there's a cabinet shuffle and Deb Matthews at this point goes to, uh, you think I remember the title because I worked there, <laughs> Advanced Skills and Education, and then Poverty Reduction then gets added on to the mandate of the Minister of Housing, because those two things obviously go very closely together. They're very hand in hand, homelessness, things like that all are all tied back to poverty. So it made sense for those to go together, which meant that you moved on to the Ministry of Housing, um, specifically to focus on poverty reduction, though, and to continue your work on, you know, the strategy, the annual reports that were related to the strategy, and, you know, measuring the efficacy of the five-year plan. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how the team measured the success of the poverty reduction measures each year in that report. One of the things that um, I think people tend not to look at in the poverty reduction strategy is the fact that the poverty reduction strategy contained indicators. Um, you know, they started with a certain set and they grew over time to 13. They contained indicators to measure outcomes and track progress year over year. Um, the, the, under the strategy and its um, base act, the, you're mandated to produce an annual report every year. And the indicators allow you to look at outcomes that point to poverty or are proven to increase one's chances of living in poverty. Uh, if I go back, for example, to say child poverty in the first strategy, you'll recall I said that there was a goal to reduce child poverty by 25% in five years. This was a, a very important measure and it still is because it is likely that a child living in poverty is less likely to have good health educational outcomes. And these things have a direct impact on your future employment and your income. Now with the quantitative analysis that's done by our technocrats in the civil service and our colleagues at Statistics Canada, utilizing whatever the appropriate income level below which one would be deemed to be living in poverty, you can assess each year whether we're making gains or not on certain of these indicators. So in the first target of the PRS, um, while um, the, the, that 25 over 5 was not achieved, there were, in fact, gains made largely due to the OCB, which provided, as I said, financial support to low-income families to cover things like your shelter and food. And because we knew we didn't hit our target, we doubled down in PRS 2. Data on the indicators were measured. They're reported on an annual basis. Now, when you look at the indicators and you look at an annual report, which meant they're, they're available online. Um, if you look at them from a glance, you can see where the percentages were higher year over year. So for example, if you look at birth weights, school readiness, how ready is a child for school and for learning. If you look at an important indicator like high school graduation rates, once those are going higher, it means that the conditions are improving. Um, I remember during the second report where 
second strategy where we got the high school gradu graduation rate up into the 80s, right? Which was significant. Whereas, yeah, right. So, and when where percentages are going lower, there was progress on the other, on the other stuff. So when the StatScan data looked at households in poverty between 2008 and 2012, you see a reduction. You see a significant reduction in the number of households in the province that were living in poverty. Now, as with any strategy, you know, it is highlighting, it highlights the importance of setting goals and targets, having measurable outcome, because it is what measure that gets done. And it is this sort of um, goal setting, target setting, having outcomes that you can measure, having the data that you can rely on, which is very important. And from time to time, things change at StatScan and you have lagging data, but having you know data that you can reasonably rely on to tell us what is actually happening on these various goals is important. That is something, for example, that we discussed with other provinces that were looking at poverty reduction strategies and that we also shared with the federal government at the time when they too were looking at the first Canada-wide poverty reduction strategy, that it was important to have goals, have targets and measurable outcomes and um, indicators that would truly assess the state of poverty in, in the province or in the country writ large. Those are all really good points because there's a couple of things that sort of came out of this period. One is sort of changing this idea in government about focusing on data and measurement. And one of the reasons why governments don't like to do those things is because when the numbers are out there for everyone to see, you can be held to account for those things. Yes, yes, um, yes. So it's really, it's really important from an accountability standpoint to, you know, your voters, to the people of the province that you represent to put those statements out there, measure against them, and then see how you can, you know, uh, make your way between those two gaps. The other part of that was during this period, you mentioned, you know, the federal government started off with their first poverty reduction strategy. They also came out with their first national housing plan. Uh, the BC government was focusing on a poverty reduction plan as well. This was something that started to gain a lot of momentum across the country. Um, so you can see when one province sort of stands up, raises their hands and decides to do things differently and to really put a focus on these issues, how there is a ripple effect across the board, because everyone starts to see, oh, that's actually working. We can actually make an impact by doing these things. So I think I think all the work that was being done during that period was really, really important. Um, the ripple effect of that was after doing all this, you know, data review and goal setting, we were able to put forward an idea that hadn't been touched on really since the 1970s in Canada, in Manitoba, and that was a basic income. So yes. you can't really put forward a basic income pilot without any idea about what goals you're measuring, uh, without collecting data, without really measuring whether people are going to be better or worse off under this really drastically different way of delivering government service and support. Um, so all of those, again, all of the work you've been doing up into this point was really laying the groundwork for doing something as innovative as a basic income pilot in Ontario. So. Right. Can you talk about, you know, to those who might not know what a basic income is, what that is, uh, how the idea for the pilot came to be, and then what went into creating and launching a pilot in three sites across Ontario? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're correct about um, the stage setting. I, I like the way you framed that. All the work we did before really set the stage 
for us to uh, move on to um, something like a basic income pilot. Um, at its core, a basic income is really just an unconditional cash transfer from government to individuals in order to ensure that they can um, you know, meet their basic needs and, and, and live and, and live a life with some dignity. When I say unconditionally, uh, there's typically no work requirement um, attached to it. Um, basic income as a concept is, is, is not new and you touched on that and it's actually been around for decades. Um, certainly within Canada, it has had support amongst people of different political affiliations. Um, within the context of Ontario, the government of the day, in recognition of the range of challenges it needed to address, you know, things like ongoing income inequality, um, precarious employment, uh, improved, the need for improved access to health care, safe and secure housing, employment and skills training, we needed to do something more, and we also needed to do something more within the context of what an improved income security um, world could look like, especially for our most vulnerable. Um, by the time we got to 2015, 2016, it, it felt like the time was right. I mean, if you recall uh, the Premier at the time, Premier Wynne is an active person. She is forward leaning. Um, she's bold in her approach to policy. And I think the time was right to visit the concept again. Um, I, as I said, it was a bold visionary approach, mind you, while it was met with enthusiasm, it was also met, as you can imagine, with cynicism. In the 2016 budget, it spoke to the design and implementation of a basic income pilot within the context of a reform of our income security system. Now, Teresa, you were around, and at that time, this was huge in all capital letters. Yep. This announcement um, generated widespread interest um, in the proposed pilot from members of the public, all levels of government, academia, local and international media, uh, yep. and, and, and you can recall the amount of requests for interviews the respective ministers who handled the portfolio would have had not just from local Canadian media, but from international media. It was now, truly global. It was global. In terms of the design, um, we collaborated with various experts and stakeholders um, as we had to consider a range of possible objectives for the pilot. And this was very important because you, you, you had to look at what were your objectives? poverty reduction per se, more efficient delivery of income support programs or supporting people um, in the labor market. So all of this was important because it would affect the design, would affect the costs, and the impact of it would, would vary. Um, and when I say that we collaborated with and spoke to a range of people, we spoke to uh, experts across the spectrum from people who are economists, health experts, labor market experts. We spoke to people in other, in other jurisdictions. You know, we spoke to people in Finland, in the UK, um, in the United States to get um, input on, on various aspects and issues that we needed to take a look at. You know, we, we had to consider issues like, um, what would be the participation requirement? You know, we, if it, is it truly no strings or 
would there be participation requirements like work or needing to pursue education or skills training? How would we deliver the BI, you know, the basic income? How much would the basic income be? And, you know, we also had to think about because it's a pilot, because it wasn't going to be a program rolled out. Um, what were the communities? What would be the sites? How do we choose them? How would we even evaluate the pilot? You know, would we have saturation sites? Was it going to be randomized trial? Um, when you think about the, the benefit payment, how would they be impacted like things like the federal or provincial tax benefits? You know, would they have tax implications tied to these monies? There were just so many things to consider. Um, again, as we liked to do <laughs> and we should do, we had several public consultation sessions across Ontario. And as you might recall, Teresa, I attended each and every one of them. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Which I, I will say is, is extremely important too, because yes. sometimes we sit in government in our offices and we just, you know, think yes. we've heard what people are telling yes. us. So to go out in person and speak yes. to people is crucial. I was in each and every corner, including up north uh, of, the, of this province. Um, and we gathered input. We worked with technical experts. We worked with the, you know, just the public that came in and, and brought their personal stories and issues. We listened to the questions that they, 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 they asked. You know, at the end of the day, um, the pilot, as it was designed, it was a no strings approach. So participants were not required to work or to participate um, in education or training. We landed on an intent that was to test how the basic income might help people who are living on low incomes better meet their needs while improving their employment, education, and health. Um, the sites that we ended up choosing were Hamilton, Brantford and Brant County, Thunder Bay, and Lindsay. Uh, we had to, in, in choosing the sites, because um, again, you might recall we were bombarded with um, requests from various communities for yeah. their town to be a yep. site, you know, um, and we had to look at it in a very scientific way. You know, we, we had to be data driven as well. So we looked at issues around the prevalence of low income populations, the cost of living in these particular areas. What was the unemployment, unemployment rate like? Just, just to name a few things that we looked at and you know, then we landed on those sites and so that they would actually be representative of the population that we were looking at. Um, the application packages with the information on the pilot was sent out randomly to randomly selected individuals and we invited them to participate. Participation was voluntary and those between the ages of 18 to 64, uh, ordinarily resident in the province, and in the chosen site were eligible to apply. At the end of the day, um, we enrolled over 6,000 people in the site, in the, in, in the, in the basic income pilot, um, yep. and they were split. There were about four, over 4,000 in the, in the actual pilot who received the, the benefit payment, and there were two, so, just over 2,000 in the comparison group. Um, and, you know, we landed on what the benefit payment could look like. So for those in the pilot that received the monthly payment, it was about $16,989 for a single person and right. less 50% of any earned income. 
and uh, about 24,000 something per couple, again, less 50% of any earned income. There was a top up for people on a, with a disability. So they received a top up of about $500. Um, if you're in a comparison group, you participated in the research study, but you didn't actually get the benefit money. Um, the pilot was slated to run for three years. As you know, it was actually discontinued when the new administration came in, which um, did not allow us to get the full length and breadth of the kind of data and results that we would have needed. needed. There was some preliminary data and um, work and evaluation that some of the institutions who were very interested in um, did on some of the early outcomes. But it was groundbreaking. Um, it was very informative. I think it really gave us a better view of a lot of the issues and the entrenched issues affecting people living in poverty um, that helped us to, to sort of get an idea as to what we needed to do going forward. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, especially the part about it being cut short because, you know, we were speaking earlier about how when you set goals, measure against them, you're then held, held accountable for the results of them. And I, I do think part of cutting that short was to make sure that we wouldn't be held we, I say, Ontario government, not yes. the one we served in, but yes. would not be held accountable for actually rolling out something that was clearly working. All the data pointed to the fact right. that this was a successful idea. Um, you know, we don't have the results that we wanted to get to with that, but there was a big ripple effect. So I'm going to list off yes. a few different things here. So we have 2019. We have the inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls they recommend in the report to move forward with a basic income yes. in 2020 we have the government of pei all parties represented suggesting that pei should move forward with the idea of a basic income in 2019 you have finland and kenya putting forward yep. their own proposals you have a number of u.s cities putting forward their proposals and then you actually have now the un the united nations making basic income a priority policy for yes. member states um, yes. so there's a lot of interest in it now i and i do think you know while we didn't get to finish the pilot just the idea of putting it forward doing it in such a measured way and being you know so in depth about it i think really created a lot of new interest around the world in this idea and right. it's, it's really sparked a lot of people's minds around it you know right now in canada there is the basic income canada network who is pushing this idea at the federal level they've been involved right. in, in recent elections there so it's definitely something that has caught the imagination of people and i personally would argue <laughs> that you know the ontario child benefit and you know what it what it inspired at the federal level the canada the canada child benefit um it's essentially a basic income for yes. children. Yes. And then from there, yes. we have, you know, during this this pandemic period, yes. the federal government, of course, introduced CERB, which yes. is essentially a basic income for people yes. who have lost their jobs or yes. are underemployed during that period. So it is clearly an idea that we really, really like in emergencies. And perhaps it's something that we should try and move forward with during regular times so that people yes. don't have to fall into these positions of you know despair yes. and lacking of income so i you know my hat's off to you for all the work yes. that you did on this project because i think it's been extremely influential and hopefully it's something that we see you know going forward right and, and, I, and if i could just add one of the things yeah. that you know we need to disabuse our minds of this notion that people are getting money to stay home to do nothing 
um, we started receiving those letters and those emails from recipients who within a first few couple of uh, benefit receipts under the basic income pilot started having dramatic shifts in their lives. Going back to the decision now that I could go back to school, we got letters and emails like that. People who could now consistently put food on the table to feed their children, you know? Um, people who are now thinking about improved employment prospects, maybe further away from where they were living because they now had the financial means to pay for transportation. These are some of the things that we overlook and we take for granted and we just say, oh, we're giving people money to do nothing. Not one single person did I speak to in any part of this wonderful province said to me, yes, I want to receive a basic income so I can stay home and do nothing. It was how much it would improve <laughs> their lives and that of their families exactly. that they wanted I, to secure. I, you know, I've never met a person who didn't want to work or contribute back to society in some way like those people don't exist in in my mind like everybody generally wants to contribute back to the place that yes. they live and love and yes. the basic income to me is very similar to uh, a policy that i got to work with uh, minister matthews after this which was um free tuition at advanced education and skills right. development the free tuition what we found the largest group of people i'm i'm forgetting the number now i feel like it was fifteen thousand people but fifteen thousand single mothers essentially who because they got basic income for students which is free tuition uh they were able to go back to school yes. improve yes. their fiscal situation for their family yes. and basic income the program that we did um also had the same impact like that's usually who is getting helped by this it's usually right. young women with families um and those are usually to your point we're looking at helping those who are most disadvantaged so that we can help them level up their lives and that has ripple effects for everybody in society so yes again i will be forever an advocate for this program because i think it was a really great idea but obviously it's it's something that has caught fire around the world and i think you know our pilot had a lot to do with that it certainly did so as we get into my last question here, I want to talk about women in politics and the impact on what we choose to care about from a policy perspective, because, you know, Kathleen Wynne, Deb Matthews were always very focused on children. You know, they're big drivers behind the Ontario Child, Child Benefit in the first place. Um, they are a big reason, you know, in their backbench days why that policy happened in the first place. They were very, very focused on poverty reduction and equality and all these issues that are surrounding that. And I don't think a lot of these issues would have come to the forefront without the participation and force of women behind them. So for my last question, I want to talk about, you know, knowing everything you know now from working in politics on these issues with these wonderful women who help spearhead these these great ideas. What advice would you give to young women and, you know, just any women who want to get involved in the political process, whether it's as a volunteer or as a staff person to advance issues that they really care about uh, in the political sphere? What advice would you give to them? Um, OK, I, I'm glad you asked and I get this question. I get asked this question quite often. And I always start by saying women make up roughly 50% of the Canadian population. Right. By virtue of our sheer numbers, we need more women involved in civic activities and in the political exactly. decision-making process, whether it's municipally, provincially, or federally. 
Now, women, we are typically in charge of our households. We're the, man, we're the ones managing our budget, the budgets. We're responsible for child rearing, interacting with healthcare and educational providers on behalf of the entire family. Um, you know, so we, we're at the pulse. We have our finger on the pulse. Increasingly, though, we are seeing gender-specific issues that affect women and girls being decided on by men. While research has shown that women involved in politics prioritize issues pertaining to education, healthcare, childcare, and other issues of broad impact. Um, a lot of times when you look at the, the broader issues that men focus on, you know, industry, economic development, finance, infrastructure, transportation. Now, women, as, as you've pointed out with like a Kathleen Willem and Deb Matthews, they're fo focusing on issues that affect everyone and from sort of foundational areas, education, healthcare, childcare. Classic examples in, in Ontario of impactful changes are things like the Ontario Child Benefit and full day kindergarten, women led. Um, I believe that women should actively volunteer and where possible work in politics as that's a way to influence the outcomes and the decisions and to make, have an impact. Um, women should not be afraid or hesitant to bring their skills to bear on the political arena. We have skills, we have expertise, we have hard skills. Women are also um, quite thoughtful and empathetic. We're collaborative, we're enthusiastic. We're good active listeners and we need a lot more of that in politics. <laughs> we need a lot more empathy in politics as well. And I can say this, I'm yet to meet a woman in politics who isn't tenacious. We're tenacious, we're fighters. <laughs> that is and we very have, true. We have that spirit that says we are here to get the job done. So to young women out there, um, don't be afraid of politics. Um, actually educate yourself around political issues. Politics affects you in your everyday life. It affects you where you live. So you need to be aware of what is happening, what the decision makers are doing, and you can get involved. You can volunteer in a campaign. You can go to town halls. You can ask questions. You can listen, you know, but um, don't be afraid. Don't shy away from the political arena. We need more women in politics and more women at the seat of decision making tables. I think that is a fantastic note to wrap up on. Thanks so much for joining me today, Camille. This was absolutely fun. The Persisters Can podcast is hosted and produced by Teresa Lubowitz. Our theme song, Trailblazer, was created by four-time Emmy-nominated composer, Guillaume. And our logo was created by Canadian graphic designer Andrea Ledwell. Thanks for tuning in.